You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. not sure where it begins, but somewhere along our way in life, we develop expectations, notions about how our lives are supposed to be, what they're supposed to look like. I used to blame it on Disney. You know, the Disney princess syndrome with their perfectly beautiful heroines and the handsome brave princes who may face trouble, but you know confidently will come together perfectly by the end of the movie. But I don't think it's Disney's fault anymore. Completely, that is. Maybe a little bit. These expectations are cobbled together from many places. After all, we ask children and youth continually, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we keep telling them, you can be anything you want to be, even as we know full well the difficulties of following dreams, of even knowing what our dreams might be, and the reality that work or careers may not be the place where most of us find the fullness of life's meaning after all. And then, of course, there are all the other movies and books and advertisements and magazines. Somehow, some way, the idea gets planted in our heads of the perfect life, the perfect spouse, job, children, home, or town. And those expectations are written into the narratives that we write for our own lives. Christmas time is a small microcosm of that same phenomenon. The expectations for Christmas can build up until they are impossible to meet. You know the Hallmark Christmas movie ending with everyone making it home in time for Christmas, with big, happy families gathered together with the warm glow of the fireplace, a perfectly decorated Christmas tree with beautifully wrapped presents, And the presents, they are the perfect gifts, one that everyone will love and no one will want to return. All this holidayness with the soundtrack of Christmas carols playing in the background while everyone is sipping perfectly spiced eggnogs and families are in perfect harmony. I hear you. It's an unrealistic expectation, isn't it? Built upon nostalgia for a time that never really was. 
the demands we put on ourselves and on other people to play a part in all of this drama and unachievable expectations for the holidays, they are many and they are relentless. A few years ago when my son was in college, one of his friends, a second year college student, was invited to travel with his girlfriend to her parents for Christmas. And they lived far away, not just in another state, but in another country. And so the young man asked his mom, quote, on a scale of one to ten, how upset would you be if I wasn't home for Christmas? Eleven was her reply. You know the feeling, don't you? Something happens and the perfectly orchestrated holiday we had in our minds begins to unravel right before our eyes in real life. And it's only natural to be upset. Is it any wonder that so many of us are stressed every single day of December? The whole thing is exhausting. All the hustle and the bustle, the shopping and the present wrapping, all the cooking and the cleaning, the holiday travel and planning, so much of it done in search of a perfect Christmas, and it's a Christmas that will never come. I think that's part of what makes me feel for Joseph in our gospel reading today. We're told that he's engaged to be married to Mary. Now, there's no good way to translate an ancient concept of engaged into our modern understandings of courtship and marriage. You see, the initial transaction of marriage had been made at this point. Joseph has arranged with Mary's father or guardian some certain financial arrangements, contracts, have been reached and signed, and the only the final step of a ceremony remains for the couple. Breaking off an engagement at this point requires a legal divorce. And now Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, and the story that he's written for his life starts to unravel. And he struggles, as any man in that situation might, as to what he should do. His expectations for marriage have been shattered before it even really begins. And in Joseph's world, infidelity was not just fodder for afternoon talk shows or Twitter scandals. You see, a binding contract had been violated. His society, his community would look at the situation and decide that he, Joseph, had been economically harmed in this situation. And that Mary and the responsible male were at fault for this financial disgrace. And so depending upon the circumstances in the olden days before Joseph's time, one or both of the parties could have been stoned to death. Now thankfully... This death penalty had been a bit relaxed by Joseph's day, and now more than likely it would have been a public shaming ritual. And that would have replaced the stoning. In a thoroughly patriarchal society, the young woman would have been viewed as damaged goods, and her family, her entire family, disgraced. 
So Matthew paints a picture of Joseph struggling with his next steps. What do you do when your expectations have been shattered? N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, has a translation that puts it this way. Joseph, her husband-to-be, was an upright man. He didn't want to make a public example of her, so he decided to set the marriage aside privately. But while he was considering this, I like that. Matthew puts us right in the middle of Joseph's private deliberations. But while he was considering this, it gives me a mental picture of Joseph unable to sleep, tossing and turning, getting up to pace the floor until he collapses back onto his bed, convinced that he has no good choice in front of him. And only then, when Joseph finally thinks that he's made his decision and he falls into what had to have been a restless sleep, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream. Here's another barrier for us 21st century folks to understand what a dream would mean in the first century. We all can't be helped but be influenced by Freud, right? That thinking of dreams as being intricately connected to our unconscious. That dreams are a way of resolving our emotions and our experiences and working around all those controls that we set up when we are conscious and awake. In other words, we understand dreams to be of our own creation. But that would not have made sense to folks in the ancient world who instead of thought dreams as a spatial reality in which the divine would communicate with humans. And so Matthew, as he's writing this story, uses the dream motif five times in the first two chapters of his gospel. And here, in the first of these dreams, he gives us a dream narrative that's in keeping with the very traditional forms of dream reports in ancient Greco-Roman literature. Joseph receives a prophetic dream, which requires a response from him. And the angel offers Joseph a way through his troubles, probably not one that he wanted to take. Yes, his initial dreams for marriage and family are broken, but all is not lost, the angel says. Don't be afraid, which is right out of the divine angel script for such troubling announcements. Don't be afraid. The angel gives Joseph assurance. This marriage is not beginning the way you planned. But God is at work here. So don't walk away. Don't walk away. Instead, pick up the pieces, for God is working for a blessing in the midst of the brokenness. And somehow, Joseph, the upright man, troubled by circumstances beyond his control, confused by his choices, finds the courage to stay to stay in the midst of the messiness that he finds himself in. There's so much to love about this Joseph, this brave man who chooses the difficult way rather than the easy. And yet after chapter 2 in Matthew's gospel, he disappears from the story never to be seen again. But here, 
For a few verses in Matthew, Joseph shines. I mean, he just shines. A man contemplating his future shoulders a burden put upon him and then walks into a future unclear and embraces a woman and her unborn child. The poet W.H. Auden, in his Christmas oratorio entitled For the Time Being, depicts this struggle and this dream of Joseph as a temptation in which a contemporarily styled Joseph struggles with the choice in front of him, asking for just some tiny thread of proof to hang his decision on. Alden writes, give me one reason. He has Joseph beg. And Gabriel in response says one word, no. And Joseph pushes back and says, all I ask is one important and elegant proof that what my love had done was really at your will and that your will is love. But Gabriel, in response, says simply, no, you must believe. Be silent and sit still. At this point in the poem, Auden has the narrator step in with a really long discourse that I won't read, but then ends the section by saying, sin fractures the vision, not the fact. For the exceptional is always usual, and the usual exceptional. To choose what is difficult all one's days, as if it were easy, that is faith. Joseph prays. Somehow in this story that Matthew gifts us with, Joseph summons the strength and the courage to choose the difficult, not just for one night or one day, but for the rest of his days. And that indeed is a picture of faith, isn't it? So back to the gospel story, the angel instructs Joseph saying, name the child Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, a beautiful name of hope, meaning God saves. It's a defiant act of faith to name a child God saves, isn't it? When Joseph has been thrown into a situation not of his own choosing, he says God saves. When life doesn't turn out the way you'd hoped, God saves. That is good news for us because at some point in our lives, we will find ourselves in a mess, won't we? We will find ourselves in a mess sometimes of our own making, sometimes because of circumstances outside of our control. And regardless of the reason, those broken times will come and we do not get mulligans. The mess doesn't magically disappear and it's in those difficult times that we need to hear the name of the child anew. Jesus. Yeshua. God saves. Naming the child is not only an act of faith that God does save, but naming a child, a child who is not his, for Joseph in his time, would have been a formal act of adoption to take on the responsibility of giving the child a family and a name. 
And that act of adoption is important for Matthew's telling of this story because through Joseph's heritage, Jesus has lineage to David. And it's through Joseph's faithfulness that Matthew can link Jesus up to David, the great king of Israel. And then it's that. It's that. Naming of Jesus. The birth narrative ends in Matthew's gospel. That's it. There's no more angels. There's no annunciation to Mary. There are no shepherds in Matthew. Look it up. There's no traveling to Bethlehem. There's no crowded inn or a manger. And don't get me started on a crowded inn. It's just Joseph. Just Joseph and his quiet struggles along with a strange and demanding dream. But it's in this little dream narrative, Matthew gives us a glimpse of who this child will grow up to be. A child who can claim King David and his family tree, but more importantly, a child who had Joseph as a father. Joseph, who faced difficulties, but who ultimately embraced the trouble and made a way through it. A way of shelter and protection and love. In the changing of directions, he chooses to make room for an unexpected child. To open up his life to something radically different than he had imagined. To make space for love. You know, the kind of love that the Apostle Paul would later write about. The kind of love that is patient and kind. A love that doesn't insist on its own way. A love that isn't irritable or resentful. But hears all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Through the gentle prodding of that visiting angel, Joseph was able to let go of his expectations for his life and to be led by love into a new way of living. Not the one that he would have chosen for himself, but with faith he takes on anyway. For us, Advent can be the time in which angels visit us too. With an invitation to us to let go of our expectations. To put aside the regrets that we may have been dragging along with us into this season. And instead take up a new way of living ourselves. All that time that we've spent searching for the perfect holiday, for the perfect gift, the perfect life. The angel visits us and says, let it go. Just let it go. Embrace the life you've been given a life with all of its glorious imperfections, with its painful, broken parts, with the shadowy valleys that do not quickly fade away. Make room for the unexpected. The unexpected in the ordinary, the everydayness with an expansiveness like Joseph that celebrates the incarnation of God into flesh and blood, into the earthiness of our existence, in the faces we see of friends and strangers, in the wonder that is the messiness of this season. Embrace this life and you will know the truth. You will know it deep in your bones, the truth of the child who comes to us, the child Jesus, 
Yeshua, God saves. For Emmanuel, God is with us. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.